Well, I want to start with a little bit of a, a confession. I'm, uh, I'm what you'd call a perfectionist. I suffer from that, uh, that incident, that, that condition. There's no such thing. There is such thing. Are you arguing with me? I'm the one with the mic, Derek. Come on. It's a bad start right here. And I'm also distractible, so that's not a good way to go here. But, uh, and I think everyone suffers with this a little bit. Because have you ever made a mistake and you just wish you could start over? You just wish, can I just start that day over? Uh, words come out of your mouth and you instantly go, oh, that was not a very good thing to say. I won't say the exact words because I don't need to remind Karison of it. But this week, I said words to my wife that as soon as I said I went, oh, man, that was not a very smart thing to say. But uh, for everyone in this room, we all have times when we make mistakes. And we wish we could have a fresh start. We wish we could push reset. Maybe it's 20 years ago. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was in that second that you wish you could have a reset. You wish that you could start over. Or maybe, maybe you had tried to start over. And you said, well, I'm going to do better this time. But you mess up again. Or maybe you're like me and you mess up again and again and again. And you just, you just wish that you could just start over. But there's times when we go through situations and we go through hard things. And we wish that God would make it so that we just didn't struggle with it anymore. That we didn't have that situation. But often... God actually allows us to go through situations where we fall flat on our face and we fail because failure is one of the best teachers that there is. And I can attest to that. I have learned so much through failure that I couldn't have paid a school to learn these things. It's just, it's just life. I've gone through situations where I've been embarrassed, where I've been hurt, where I've tried something, it's failed, and I just, I wish I could start over, but I never would have learned the lessons that I learned if I hadn't gone through that school of failure. And, uh, and I'm sure everyone here has gone through a situation like that. But the, the truth and the hope of the gospel that we have in Jesus starts with bad news. It starts with the news that there is no one who's righteous. Righteous is a fancy word that means uh, blameless, blameless, upright, worthy. There's no one who's righteous. So there is no one who is in right, good standing with God. Before Jesus died on the cross, there was no hope for humanity. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, he offers us a second chance. So Jesus offers us a second chance. And even his death appeared like failure. But it was actually a new beginning through the resurrection. Our main passage this morning is out of uh, the Gospel of Mark. If you have a hard copy Bible or an iBible, I'd love for you to be there with me. Or it will be on the screen behind you. I'm reading out of the NIV 2011 version. And it starts with, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, 
because they were afraid. Because they were afraid. Now the the gospel is a history written from the the perspective of people that were actually there that were eyewitnesses. And Mark was a young man who followed around Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples. But we see in this story, the main characters are actually three women. Now, uh, back in uh, Jesus' time, the way that the the legal structure worked was that women in this culture were not actually allowed to even give evidence in court because they were deemed uh, unworthy to do so. So if a hundred women saw something and one man saw something different, they would take the man's word over the women's. But Jesus, through uh, through his power and through his grace, he actually chooses three women to be the ones who would see that he is alive. They're the first eyewitnesses to the greatest miracle on earth. And there's lots of people that have said uh, that the resurrection is made up. But if you were going to make it up, they would never have chosen women because of that. They never would have because no one would believe them. Who cares what women would say was what people would say. But Jesus, through his infinite wisdom, chose three women to show the power of the message. And so these three women, they were coming to do a great thing for Jesus. In that culture, when someone died, they were, uh, they were wrapped in a whole bunch of cloths and they were anointed with different spices in order so that their body could decompose without having an overwhelmingly bad odor because they would put multiple people in the same tomb and then the, after the, the body had decomposed to a point, they would move it out somewhere. And uh, because Jesus had died so quickly and on the afternoon right before the Sabbath, which started at sundown, they didn't have time to properly prepare him for burial. And so Joseph of Arimathea uh, quickly prepares Jesus as quick as he can and puts him in a tomb that's close by. But these women are coming as soon as they possibly can after Jesus died. Because after this, the Sabbath would have started on the Friday night right after Jesus died. And it would have went all throughout the day and would have ended at uh, sundown on the Saturday night. And then this is the first day of the week, Sunday morning. That was the first day of their work week, and this was the first opportunity that they had to actually go and prepare Jesus' body. And so they come here, and they're they're doing something great for Jesus, but they know that the tomb has a huge stone over top of it. And they, they realize they have a problem. There's a stone that's too big for them to possibly have the strength to roll out of the way. But that doesn't stop them from doing what they want to do for Jesus. They have this obstacle in their way that they have no idea how to surmount, but they want to do something beautiful for Jesus as a final act of love towards him to take care of his body. But they come, and what they're expecting is totally different than what they get. They go there, and the, two, the stone is already rolled away. The barrier has already been removed from them. And then in, instead of seeing Jesus' body inside they quite unexpectedly see this angel. And uh, Renaissance art has totally altered what we would picture as an angel. We think of a, a golden halo and big, uh, big bird wings that are really flowing and nice. But the way that angels uh, are actually described in the Bible is that they're just like people that ha- are a little brighter. And they, they look young. So imagine a glowing young person that's sitting in front of you. You know, like maybe pregnancy glow that some women get, but like 
in a, in a young teenager in the like, prime of their life, a 19, 20-year-old that's young and shiny and bright, in bright clothing. So these people, quite, quite naturally, are alarmed. And the angel, the first thing he says is, don't be alarmed. I would think like, well, of course I'm alarmed. Yeah, right. You tell me not to be surprised. Jesus isn't here and there's a glowing person. That's a little bit alarming. But they come here and, uh, and they have this barrier removed and this angel's sitting here and he says, don't be alarmed. This isn't what they're expecting. He was crucified and killed. And even though he had told them he would raise again, they thought that he meant in the end of time, in the end of days. They weren't expecting this. And there's uh, something that uh, Christians have done, and I tried to look up the origin of this, and nobody knows where it came from. But it's this call and response that people do on Easter. And it, uh, it has the leader saying, he has risen, and then everyone else say, he has risen indeed. There you go. I, didn't even, I was just going through the run-through, but do you guys want to do it again? You know? He has risen. He is risen Amen. And that, there you go. That's a declaration of faith right there. Declaring that Jesus has risen. And so these women that are alarmed, that have something unexpected, they're, tell, they're told, go tell people what you have seen. Go tell the disciples. And he specifies Peter. And for those who maybe aren't as familiar with this, the reason he points out and specifies Peter is because on the day that uh, Jesus was handed over, he had, uh, Peter had said, no matter what happens, no matter if all these other disciples walk away, I'm going to stick with you. Even if everyone else condemns you, even if everyone else runs away, I will die right beside you. And Jesus tells him, even this, uh, but this very night, you'll deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. Peter, this bold guy who said, I'm going to follow you no matter what. I'll even die beside you, was in these uh, little groups of people and including just a girl that came up to him and said, hey, aren't you, aren't you with that Jesus guy? You're also from Galilee. And he denies it three separate times. And so he's showing that even Peter, who has, uh, who has, uh, who has denied Jesus, is worth telling him about what Jesus has said. Now, this is a little aside here, and I don't want to go too much into it, but if you have a hard copy Bible, and even in some of the, uh, the online versions of the Bible, sometimes it has uh, double square brackets here from the rest of the verses in Mark, from 9 to 20. And, uh, the reason, and it'll have a little side note that'll say something to the effect, like it says in my Bible, it says, uh, uh, some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 19, or 9 to 20. And without going into uh, too much detail about this and going into it, I just wanted to just explain a little bit of how we got the Bible. So we got the Bible from eyewitnesses and from people that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture down. And then it would be copied uh, scrupulously as much, as perfectly as people possibly could. There were people that were professional at handwriting out copies, and they would be checked by multiple people to make sure that they were correct. And now, thousands of years later, the way that we verify that the Bible is correct is by looking at the oldest copies of these manuscripts that we had. And uh, in the 1900s, there was uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found that were miraculously preserved, and they were uh, some of the oldest manuscripts that they had ever found that were still intact. And they're saying that some of these earliest manuscripts, the earliest ones, which are the best ones, the closest to the originals, don't have these verses. And there's different uh, theories of what happened. Some believe that uh, the original scroll that, they it, wrote, uh, that Mark wrote the rest of the ending on was ripped and lost. Some believe that uh, 
that uh, this is actually where it was meant to end, at the end of verse 8. And then some believe that, uh, that copyists, they found that it ended too abruptly and too strangely because it ends with the women saying they were afraid and they didn't tell anyone. And they thought, that can't be right. And so they, they took what they could from other uh, manuscripts of uh, the other Gospels and tried to put something together. And uh, I believe, and this is the point where it's up to you to, to discern from the evidence, but this is what I believe, is that uh, Mark actually meant to end at verse 8. And the reason was because this was such an abrupt ending, and Mark was a guy that was, he was young, and he was trying to go for a point here. And when the, uh, the Bible was first written, the way that it worked is people would write out scrolls, and then they would be passed around and read out loud. And during this time, when Mark was first read, there, the earliest eyewitnesses were still alive. And this would have been read in churches. And so people would have read the whole scroll of Mark, and then it would have ended here. And people, it's like a cliffhanger at the end of a movie, and you want to see the next part. You want to see the sequel, like in, at the end of Infinity War, for anyone that's there. You, got, you want to see Endgame. You want to know what happens. Do they come back alive? Do they not? I don't know if there's an age gap there, but anyways. There's, uh, there's this great movie. It has a great ending, but cliffhanger. And you want to know what happens next. And so they would have been sitting there wondering, well, what happened next? And then some of the olders would have, got, would have said, well, I know what happened. The women actually went and did this. And they would have filled in the rest of the story. And I, so I think Mark actually does it on purpose. I think Mark does it because it adds this tension. And it has us this question that we would ask. That these women that are met with fear and silence, they ask, what will we do what will we do personally with the news of Jesus' resurrection? The women chose instead to be fearful and silent at the end of Mark. But what will we do? If we know that and believe that Jesus has resurrected, what will we do with that news? So do we take Easter for granted, the fact that Jesus came back alive? Or are we awestruck by this strange and powerful, miraculous work of God? And also, do we know this risen Lord? Do we personally know him? Or is it just something we've heard about? Well, there's a, a few quick things that we can take out of this passage. And uh, it all actually has to do with failure. But the first is uh, with success. It says that Jesus is to be found in obedience to his command. Jesus told them to go and tell people through this angel. He said, go and tell them. Go into Galilee. Jesus is going to be there. In verse 7, he says, he is going ahead of you. Jesus didn't wait for them at the tomb. It says that he went ahead of them. And so Jesus is going ahead of those who follow after him. That's why we're followers. We're following Jesus. And so are we following him? Or are we just like these women or who are tasked with bringing the good news to the end of the, the world? Are we obeying him? Or are we being fearfully silent? So followers of Jesus have to do what Jesus told us to do. And that's where we see Jesus at work. Jesus says to love the poor, to love the persecuted, to go out and to be his hands and feet in the, hands and feet in the world. And so when we want to see Jesus, we have to go where Jesus is at work. We have to go out, and that's where we'll see Jesus. And so if we want to see Jesus, we must look for him where he's at work, among the lost and the broken. He's ahead of us, and we must follow him where he leads. But the beautiful thing is that God has grace, which means a gift that we don't deserve, and that uh, us fallible humans, we must learn from our own failure. So following after Jesus, or the fancy biblical term is discipleship. 
is not this triumphant march from success to success. It's actually more of a, a success failure, success failure, success failure. But rather than repeating our failures over and over again, we must learn from them. So Peter, I mentioned earlier, he had denied Jesus three times. But in the same city where, G where he denied Jesus, a few short days later, after he had received the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he stood up in front of a crowd of thousands of people and preached one of the greatest sermons ever. And thousands of people gave their lives to Jesus that day. So Jesus, who had been scared in, in small groups of people in front of one or two or three people to even say that he knew Jesus, boldly preaches about him. Jesus offered him a second chance. He had learned from his failure. He had, he had actually learned. He had said that when Jesus, uh, when Jesus was telling them he was going to die on the cross, he said, I'll die no matter what. No matter what, I won't, I won't uh, give up. But then he denies him three times. But at the end of uh, Peter's life, he was actually crucified. He boldly preached about Jesus throughout his life to the point where he was crucified. And amazingly, extra-biblical sources tell us that he said he, he wasn't worthy to be crucified the same way Jesus was. So he said, please crucify me upside down. And so this man who had been scared to tell people one-on-one -on -one that he even knew who Jesus was, boldly walks towards his own death willingly because he learned from his mistakes. And the gospel is actually the power of God at work in the lives of those who don't deserve it, who don't earn it, and who make mistakes. And so when we find that we make a mistake, God's grace is actually there to forgive us and to refresh us. And Christianity is different from any other religion. Because any other religion says, if you do the right things in the right order, in the right way, then you're going to be good enough to get into paradise. And there are some people who say that they're followers of Jesus that, that have this mentality. But the gospel actually says that you can't be good enough. No matter what you do, no matter how good you are, you can't possibly get into heaven. It is only because of what Jesus did. It is only because Jesus was worthy to die that you don't have to. It was only because of what Jesus did. And that's the starting point of our obedience. Everything else we do, if going to church, singing songs, praying, reading our Bible, anything else, it doesn't get us into heaven. It doesn't get us in a relationship with Jesus. It just helps our relationship we already have because of what he did and what we declare through faith. That's the beautiful thing. That's the beautiful power in Jesus' name, that when we make mistakes, it doesn't matter how many times you sin, it doesn't matter what you do. If you ask God for forgiveness, he'll forgive you. That's the beauty of the gospel. And we have this through, G through Peter in verse 7 again. It says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, we would have written Peter off. I personally would have written Peter off. If, if I knew somebody that said that they had denied Jesus three times, I would have said, you know, one, two, three strikes, you're out. You're done. There's no way. I wouldn't have given Peter another chance. He had three chances, four is too many. But God gives him another chance. But I love Peter, and I love that Jesus forgave him, because sometimes I blow it too. Sometimes I make mistakes. I make bad choices. And I'm capable of doing things uh, that, are, that are sinful and wrong, unfortunately. I wish I wasn't. But like Peter, we can be forgiven. That's the beauty. And so eventually, 
we have to admit that we're not strong enough, that we're not good enough. Peter boasted in his own strength that he would stand by Jesus. But it was only through surrendering and admitting that he wasn't strong enough that he was able to receive God's grace and his forgiveness. And I love that Jesus doesn't write Peter off. He bolsters him up, gives him another chance. And he was able to do this not because he all of a sudden is stronger and all of a sudden is this amazing person. It's because God's work is, or God's power is at work in him. And the, uh, the third thing that we can learn is that Jesus, or God's will and Jesus' promises have been fulfilled despite human disobedience. That's a mouthful. Essentially, it's to say that God's plan, God's promises, what God has said would happen, happens not just because we follow him, but actually because, or even though we don't follow him, even though we're disobedient. God had promised right from the beginning that he would bring salvation. And it didn't depend, well, if human beings do a good enough job, then they can happen. Then it will happen. It happened despite disobedience. And so God's promises don't actually depend on us. God's kingdom will come. His will will be done. People are being saved. The lost are being found. People's lives are being transformed by the power of Jesus at work in their lives. There are people in the Middle East who, uh, Muslim people, that no one has ever shared the gospel with them. And they have a dream that Jesus comes to them and asks them to follow them and they accept. No human being can take credit for that. There's people that say, well, I led someone to the Lord. Well, that's not possible. <laughs> Maybe you pointed someone to where Jesus is, but we can't even lead ourselves. We can follow, but that's about it. But God is at work in the world. But the choice that we have as individuals and as communities of faith all throughout the world is whether or not we want to be a part of what God is doing. Whether or not we want to join in the building of the kingdom. Do we want to be a part of God's salvation of the world? Do we, as individuals, want to be a part of that? Do we want to follow after Jesus and experience this new life and this new hope? Or do we want to sit on the sidelines and watch? You know, uh, as I said, the, the Bible was written by eyewitnesses, people that were there, people that God worked in and spoke in. What if, what if Mark actually ended with these women not telling anyone that Jesus rose from the dead? Would the story die with them? God is good, and he is gracious, and he would make it happen. But they wouldn't have had a part in his kingdom. And so we're given this opportunity to follow Jesus or not. It's up to us. It's a choice. God doesn't force it. He doesn't make it happen. And the way uh, in, the, in the Old Testament times, and then even into Jesus' times, parchment was very, very expensive. It was made out of animal skins that were the best of the best. They had to be really good. And very few people were literate, able to, to read and write. And so it was super expensive. And so they would only write down the most important things. And they would make a few copies. But the beautiful thing is that they had a different way of doing it. They were an oral culture. That they essentially, they memorized so much of the Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrew children would have been in class to learn and to memorize scripture. And they would have had most of the, the scripture memorized by the time that they were 10 or 12. And uh, they would tell and recite things perfectly. But the, the only way that God's message was truly able to spread throughout the world was by sharing it publicly. By being able, people telling people what Jesus did for them. 
And we got to see and experience that this morning with three different people who are baptized, sharing about Jesus' story and work in their lives. For all three of them, since they were little children, they had the privilege of growing up in the church in different settings and getting to learn and experience who Jesus is. But there are other people like me that didn't have that experience. I didn't grow up in the church. And the reason that I came to faith is because somebody was bold enough and kind enough and loving enough to share who Jesus was with me. And they said, come with me to church. It didn't help. It didn't hurt that it was my girlfriend and her dad was the pastor. But (laughs) it wasn't Karison. It was old. I won't say her name. But anyways, uh, you never say your ex's names, but that's okay. But, uh, But she cared enough about me to bring me to church. And I felt loved and accepted. And I didn't actually feel like I was being evangelized per se. I didn't have them sit down and say, okay, you have to know this point and then this point and then this point and this point. No, they just cared about me, brought me in their lives, and brought me with them. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't hard. And then God did the rest. They just cared enough about me to be real people and befriend me and love me and care for me and accept me. It was awesome. And I didn't know this, but uh, later, after I actually became a Christian, uh, her dad said that uh, he was going to force her to break up with me by a certain point if I didn't become a Christian. So I'm glad I didn't know that because that ultimatum might have spoiled things. But anyways, God uh, God honored that, I guess, for a little while. But uh, we have, each of us, whether we know Jesus or not yet, there's a story of what God has done in our lives. And maybe we don't recognize it as God. Maybe we say, oh, the universe, or there's something at work, or there's a power, or we just recognize something and maybe somebody that we know and that we care about that loves Jesus. God is at work in your life personally and through those people as well. And the, uh, the beautiful metaphor that we have about Easter is, is the rising of the sun. When Jesus died on the cross, even though it was in the middle of the afternoon, the sun was unnaturally darkened. It was a miracle. There was darkness that covered the land because God was grieving that his son died. But on this Sunday morning, when these women are walking to the tomb, the sun rose. And sunrise, in the same way that uh, sunrise dispels darkness, in the same way that God's hope and his resurrection dispels the power of death and sin in our lives. Jesus offers absolutely everyone a second chance, a third chance, a fourth or a thousandth chance to follow after him. And so we are all left with the opportunity that no matter how many times we failed, we can choose whether to accept that love and that grace and that gift or not. And so I would ask you this morning, wherever you are with Jesus, do you understand that he died and he rose again for you? Do you understand that he loves you no matter what you did? You know, the uh, part of the Apostles' Creed that says that he died and he descended into hell. Or other versions say Hades. He descended into hell. Hell is where we go if we have been sinful and we reject the mercy and love of God. And I don't say that to try and twist your arm and, oh, if you don't turn or burn, is the old school phrase. I only know that because I've heard it. But, uh, but the reason I say that is because there's no depth of sin or rebellion, that you can go that Jesus hasn't been lower than you have. There's nothing that you could have possibly have done that Jesus says, no, that's too much. You know, all of us have something innate in us that we're really good at masking how we actually think and feel because we worry 
that if people truly knew what was in our hearts, in our minds, that we would be rejected. Now, we're pretty good at faking it because once we become adults and we, we go through elementary school and junior high and high school, we get pretty good at masking these things because we realize if we actually share what we're thinking and feeling with, with everyone around us, they push us away, they reject us, we wouldn't have friends anymore. And, but the beautiful thing is that God actually knows everything. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows every feeling you've ever felt. And he loved you anyways. He created you. There's nothing you can do, say, think, be, anything that he would say, no, that's across the line. There is no line with Jesus. He loves you because he made you, created you, and you're perfect the way you are. You just have to say, Jesus, please forgive me. And he will. It's that easy. And then you can have new life with him. You can have new hope. And so now I just want to uh, just pray for you. But first of all, there's, uh, there's three quick things. I like doing these. Uh, just ways of responding during this week, if you would. Uh, three ways of acting on this message. And then uh, the worship team, I'd love them to come up while I'm praying. But first is to read. Read the Gospel of John. John uh, has this amazing gospel, if you've never read it before. It's really poetic and beautiful and explains uh, who Jesus is in such a poetic way. Uh, so just read that. You can uh, even look it online, uh, just Bible.com if you don't have a Bible. And the second is to ask. Ask yourself, am I ready to accept another chance? If you've walked away from Jesus, if you've stumbled, if you've sinned, if you've rejected him, accept another chance. And then the third is to pray. Pray out to Jesus to rule your life. Because having somebody else in control is so much easier. You don't have to worry. He loves you and he accepts you and he wants what's best for you. So would you, would you please uh, join me in praying as the worship team comes up and helps us respond this morning? Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, and that you created us just the way you want us to be, Lord. We, we may stumble, we may fall, we may, we may make mistakes. We call them sins, Lord, but you never say, no, that's too much. If we come to you and we say, please forgive us, Lord, you forgive us. And so I, we love you for that, Jesus. We love you for paying for our sins on the cross. And for anyone here this morning who maybe doesn't yet have a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that they would reach out to you. And there's no, there's no magic words to say. There's no formula. But Jesus, I just pray that they would reach out to you in prayer and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know what it is. I want to have this hope. I want to have this joy. I want to have the life that you have promised for those who come to faith in you, Jesus. And so I pray for all of us here this morning that whether we know you already or whether we're just trying to figure you out or we're not ready to make that step forward, Jesus, I pray that you would bless us through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we understand what you have done, the sacrifice and may we be filled with your spirit to be able to boldly share like Peter. We don't have to know everything. We just have to know that you love us, and that's enough to share, Jesus. Say that Jesus loves me, and he loves you too. That's a great start, love. And so I, I pray that you would help us, that you would be with us. And I pray for, for Anna Lee that she's struggling in the hospital now with tests, and it's hard for a little one to be, to be sick, Lord. I pray that you would just help her and the doctors find wisdom, Lord and to figure out what's going on and that she would be better, Lord. And 
The people in our bulletin, Lord, these are special requests for you. I pray that your hand of blessing and mercy would be on them, that you would heal those who need healing, help those who need help, and be with all of us, Lord. And now as we boldly declare your name, Lord, may those who, uh, who love you already declare your name high, and those not that would take time to pray and to seek your face. Amen.